We all pot down here. That boy is about to seek revenge over the town that murdered him. He knows this, he says, because he himself is the heir apparent to that throne of terror so long held by the likes of Voorhees, Myers, and Kruger. This man's name is Leslie Vernon. Welcome to We All Pod Down Here. I'm Dan. And I'm Brittany. And today we're going to talk about Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. This came out in 2006. And just a quick overview, this is a mockumentary where our favorite slashers are real. So we follow Taylor, who is working on a documentary for her degree. I believe she's in grad school, and she has her cameraman helping her. Their names are Todd and Doug. Wait a minute, so you're telling me our favorite slashers aren't real? Maybe. (laughs) Hmm. Anyway, they're going to be interviewing and following the process of our next up-and-coming slasher. His name is Leslie Vernon, as obviously stated before. We're going to do a real deep dive of this movie. So this might be a little bit of a longer episode. There is a lot of Easter eggs. There's a lot of trivia to go over. So I say let's just go ahead and get into it. Yeah, there's a lot of content in this that is a real hat tip to a lot of things. There's more Easter eggs than I've seen in my lifetime in this. So it's really cool. All right, so let's take a look at the cast and crew. So the director is Scott Glosserman, who's also one of the writers. He hasn't done a whole lot outside of this movie from what I've seen. The writer is David J. Stevie, and he has a couple upcoming projects. This is the main thing he's known for. Um, he also has a couple things in relation to this universe, which we'll talk about a little later. So the cast is, uh, of course, Leslie Vernon slash Leslie Mancuso is uh, played by Nathan Basil. Uh, Taylor Gentry is played by Angela Gothals, who her big claim to fame is being a Kev- one of Kevin McAllister's older sisters in Home Alone. And in a couple of scenes in this movie, too, it's actually really a really cool hella hat tip, is that you can see that her mittens have the same pattern as Kevin's hat in Home Alone. Kind of cool, right? <laughs> and uh, so Doc Holleran is played by Robert England. If you don't know who he played... Why are you listening? <laughs> right. Uh, Freddy Krueger, obviously. Uh, Kelly is played by Kate Miner. She's billed as Kate Lang Johnson. And she plays Tammy Timietti in Shameless. Very good show. Um, Eugene is played by Scott Wilson, who is such a wonderful actor, such a delight. Um, he played Herschel Green on The Walking Dead. Um, and a doctor at the beginning of The Host. He was in Young Guns 2, Exorcist 3, The Last Samurai, The Ninth Configuration. Really long list of credits for him. He's fantastic. Mrs. Collingwood is played by the amazing Zelda Rubenstein, who is Tangina from the Poltergeist movies. And sadly, this is this movie here is her last movie. But she puts in one heck of a good performance. Uh, Jamie is played by Bridget Newton. Doug is played by Ben Pace. Lauren is played by Chrissy Carlson. Todd is played by Britton Spellings, and he had a moment in uh, the U.S. The Office show as the Casino Night Craps Dealer. It was a pretty cool little scene there. Uh, Shane is played by Hart Turner. And Dr. Mueller is played by Travis Zorini. I hope I said that right. If I didn't, I apologize. 
Um, he was in Cabin Fever as Sheriff Lincoln, and he does a lot of production design. He's worked on a lot of stuff. And the next the next two credits are kind of funny. Stone Guy is played by Teo Gomez, and Slightly More Stone Guy is played by Matt Bolt. Um, no other credits for either of those two gentlemen. It might be some of the best credit descriptions ever. Right. Um, Virgin Girl is played by Jennifer Brown. And a really awesome cameo, which I totally, totally marked out on. Uh, the guy at the Elm Street house is Kane Hodder, who is Jason Voorhees in four of the sequels of Friday the 13th. He was Victor Crowley in Hatchet 1, 2, and 3. He's phenomenal. I still love when we first started watching this, and I saw immediately, like, while we're watching it, you just say, you're like, you're like is that Kane Hodder? Mm -hmm. And, like, we had to pause like, it. Right away. He's, he's a really big guy. Like, I, um, a comic convention in Pittsburgh, Steel City Con, which is such a great con. I miss it. Um, he's been there a couple times. And, I, like, just in, in awe of how big that guy is. He's mm -hmm. huge. Could be a wrestler. I was going to say, he wasn't a wrestler, though. No, he? he wasn't. But he's he's a tall guy. So, let's get into the plot summary. So, initially we have our cold open. We just see a girl. She's taking out the trash behind the restaurant she works at. And in a very Michael Myers-style situation, we see someone in the bushes. But when she turns, they're gone. I love that. Yeah. It's so like... like Immediately cool. going with the with the homages. Like, mm -hmm. like questioning, like, wait, did I really see that? Yeah. So she goes to take a closer look. The door slams and she runs around to the front. We jump to our main character, Taylor Gentry. She's being filmed... Very much, this reminds me of, like, when we just reviewed April Fool's Day, where we have the handheld cameraman, a smaller screen, and apparently they're in Glen Echo, Maryland. So, of course, as I've said before, I'm from Maryland, so I'm going to have to nerd out for a few minutes. So. Yay, Maryland! Yes, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying yay, and then you said Maryland and ruined it. I had to. I it's, know. It's my job. I had, when I was, the reason Dan does that to me is because one day at work I had someone refer to it as Maryland, and I was torn apart. Um... <laughs> No, so, of course, I refer to it as Maryland ever since. Yes. Anyway, so, Glen Echo, Maryland. This is actually a small town for fellow Marylanders. I will say MoCo. For those that are not from Maryland, it's Montgomery County. Um, this is, like, right next to Bethesda, which Bethesda is, of course, for the video game fans, that's right where Bethesda's headquarters is, is in Bethesda, Maryland. And this is about less than 30 minutes from Rockville, which is where I was born. So this is also where the writer and director, Scott Glosserman, he grew up right around this area. I believe he grew up right in Bethesda. I know he said, I read he was born there, so I assume he grew up right around that area. So he obviously has affinity for the area, which everyone from Maryland always like latches on to the fact we're from Maryland. So It's all about the flag. It partly is, yes. We have the best flag. I will fight anyone to the death on that. But so his production company is called Glen Echo Entertainment. And if you look, there's a carousel... That you'll see, like, of course, when the movie opens and they show all the credits for, you know, the sponsors and whatnot. So the logo for his production company is Glen Echo Park's Carousel, which this is a carousel that was built in 1921. So this year it's exactly 100 years old. Wow. Yes. Fun facts. And Centennial. Then, That's yes. cool. Yes. 
And then, so the area that was originally an amusement park, it was actually closed down in 1968, and then it went into disrepair. It's also rumored to be haunted. And most of that area was actually restored in the early 2000s, and it's like an arts and cultural center now. But the carousel is still there, and it can still be ridden. And with that, I will stop nerding out about Maryland and get back to the movie. <laughs> I want to check this carousel out next yeah, time one we're of these up days there visiting family or something. Or something. Or I say yeah. down there. We're down in Florida. When we're up in Maryland, we should go. That would be cool. So we learned that the classic slashers are real. Right, yes. So Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers, and this universe, all real people, all things that happened. I love this so much because it's like, okay, so this is how we're kind of grounding this universe. And a fun trivia fact is when they're on Elm Street, like we mentioned earlier, they try to speak to a man going into house number 1428 which we mentioned before, it's Kane Hodder, 1428, is, of course, Nancy's house from the original Nightmare on Elm Street and featured in many, many of the sequels. It's been also hinted that it was Freddy Krueger's house, but as far as I know, never really confirmed. Yeah, I don't think it ever was confirmed. It's just been heavily hinted at throughout the movies. And it's one of those, like, many, many, many instances of this movie of showing, like, the attention to detail Mm -hmm. in in the homages and the hat tips and stuff like that. You know, they got the house number and everything, and it's a really cool thing to, to pick out. So, Taylor begins to tell the story of a boy from 20 years ago that was supposed to be possessed by evil, and the town threw him over a waterfall, which is where he died, and he's back for revenge. So, we're kind of getting into a little bit of the backstory of the character we're going to be focusing on in this movie. Fun fact here, Taylor is outside the Red Rabbit Lounge. Does that ring any bells? So It should, because you remember back to the original Halloween movie, Dr. Loomis finds uh, the Red Rabbit Lounge matchbook that Nurse Marion Chambers had. So technically, it's also a strip club where Deborah Myers worked in Rob Zombie's Halloween remake from 2007, but we'll ignore that one. Yeah, that's not a good remake. How can I mean, I you like turn the, Dr. Loomis into, like, the evil guy? Yeah, and it's like, it's too much, like, of, like, let's feel bad for Michael Myers. I'm yeah. like, I don't feel bad for Michael Myers. Like, I, like, Dr. Loomis was the guy that was the glue of this franchise. Like, he's the one who kind of kept the narrative. He's trying to stop him. Yeah. And he's the one who made some of those kind of overlooked sequels fit and entertaining. Yeah, so it's just... Donald I, Pleasance is a, is a legend, and, like... They, they kind of just crapped on his legacy, I think, in that movie. Yeah, so. it's like, I, I like the idea of, like, more backstory for Michael Myers. Like, you know, at the end scene, like, you know, where his mom worked and all this other stuff. I, I'm fine with that part. I'm not fine with all of the other, like, let's feel bad for Michael Myers. Like no. Sometimes less is more. Yeah. And I think the more, the, you, you don't need to uncover the shroud too much on Michael Myers, but that's a whole discussion for another day. Yeah. Jumping back into the story here, so now we jump from the smaller frame view of the documentary to just what's happening. So, basically appears that we're still looking through the documentary cameras, but with full screen, and basically just what's happening outside the documentary is kind of what we're seeing in various parts. So, they're knocking on the door trying to find where, obviously, Leslie lives. They can't find him. They keep thinking they see stuff in the windows. And then Leslie pops out to startle them. I love that. He just kind of just appears. Yeah, and this is where, because I went into this movie totally blind. I had no idea what he was going to look like. It really threw me off because, you know, you're expecting, like, the standard, like, the big Michael Myers, like, you know, like, the way Kane, 
uh, Kane Hodder's, you know, as Jason Voorhees looks like this bigger character. And he's just mm-hmm. kind of this, like, scrawny kid. Like, yeah, just this kind of normal-looking dude. Which I loved. I loved that he they He kind of has, like, a charm to him. Yeah. You know, he's a really charming guy. Yeah, for sure. In some ways, kind of gives me almost like a Ted Bundy vibe. A little bit. I yeah, think because he's really, he's really affable, gets along with everyone he comes and kind of comes yeah, into contact chill. with. Not what you're expecting. I it's love that it's incredibly, like... seems like an incredibly down-to-earth friendly guy, but you start seeing little hints. Tendencies. Yeah, he's yeah. definitely got some tendencies. So we go into his house, you know, he's kind of showing them around. We get to meet his turtles, and he shows them, and he says their names are Church and Zoe. So... This is supposed to clearly be a reference to Pet Cemetery 1 and 2, but I'm just going to point out that Church is the name of the cat that dies in the first movie, but in the second movie, the dog that dies is not named Zoe, it's Zowie. So it's hmm. Z-O-W-I-E. Interesting. So I just immediately, I always love the name Zowie, and when he said that, I'm like, wait, no, it's Zowie, not Zoe. <laughs> and this is, of course, the part where we really start getting a feel of some of the dark humor that will be in this flick. Leslie has a good line where he says... That he's just, he's terrible with pets, and, and the little bastards just won't die. And he only keeps pets that he can eat. I laughed at that. So. I, was like, I, was like, I was like, of fucking course. <laughs> of course. Well, I mean, turtle soup. I oh, dear. It's kind of getting shredder vibes here. <laughs> so, of course, the, he, gives, he gives the the group for the documentary a tour of the house. He shows them you know, some of his books, and he starts doing some general card tricks, and you're really getting a feel of this guy's personality. He seems, you know, not, like, he came off as a little reserved, but he's kind of opening up a little bit, and, you know, like, the card tricks are cool, and they're, like, just having a good chat, having a good time, and he seems like just this really nice down-to-earth guy, which is exactly why you always gotta be careful, because you never know who might be in that job. And so they begin a very standard interview with him, and, you know, he starts referencing other past killers, like like slasher killers, like he goes, like, so like Mike, Freddy, Chucky. The, the point is not how they did it, but why they did it. And I really liked that, that line. Yeah, because that's what Taylor's asking about. It's like, you know, like, basically, like, you know, how they do what they do. And it's not how, it's why. Mm-hmm. Though we definitely do get in the how. And, and the we'll how is, why. <laughs> and the why, but like the how and the why is brilliant, and it's it's a really good setup for this movie too, because it kind of introduces what we're really going to be diving into. So now we head over to an old farmhouse, and there's more about the the legend behind him, or behind like all the the creepy horrible backstory. So there was uh, some local kids on the death anniversary date every year. They dare each other to spend the night in the old farmhouse. His plan, this year, he's going to reappear. And the house is currently in a trust. Yeah, because apparently he says, like, I guess this is his family home. But that it's, like, been put in a trust, and if he came forward, he could claim it. And I'm just like, he turns the power on, though, and I'm like, who the fuck is paying this electrical bill? Maybe he is under an alias. Well, we know he's under an alias, Of but... course, but, like, you know, he's... Oh, he's paying... I see what you're saying. He's, like paying, he's it paying it under an alias. He's paying it under an alias, so, like, he's funding this, so he has his, has his stage But what ready. is his job? Where is his money coming from? Because, again, he says this is in a trust, but, again, we find out, you know, because, again, spoilers, obviously, that later on that we find out that this is a lot of this isn't, like, really his story. Mm-hmm. He's taking, like, the story just to run with it when it's really not even his. So it just really starts throwing stuff through a loop, but... 
basically we go he goes into telling them you know what the steps are for this so step one is basically an anchor for the legend is what he goes into he takes them to the apple orchard says like on the harvest moon if you till the soil the soil will come up wet with blood you'll hear his mother hanging in the trees and he's like get, it gets real quiet and he's like listen like, as if you're going to actually hear the mother. And he's like, just kidding, it's not a harvest moon. We still got a month to go. <laughs> like, it's so lighthearted in a lot of this. He's got a lot of humor, this guy. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's just like, it keeps throwing you off a bit. I kind of want to hang out killer? with this dude. You know? Huh? I know. It's, it's like the kind of guy you want to have over for pizza and watch a bunch of bad movies. Yeah. Bad horror movies, perhaps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, so basically then we come into the next scene the next day. He's exercising. He's doing a lot of cardio. He's like, you have no idea how much cardio you got to do. Yeah, how hard it is to, you got to like run and without getting winded, but still make it look like you're just walking while everyone else is just sprinting. I love these little details. I love it so much. It's like, of course they need good cardio. I mean, these guys are running after these running, screaming victims all the time. And somehow they're always on their trail, but they're never moving as fast. Yeah, so, so it's just like, it, it's perfect. It's so. impressive. It's like, of course he's got to do cardio. Of course. Okay, so now we're moving on to step two, which is find your target group. They use the example of a school there or across the street in like a coffee shop, kind of just observing. And Taylor says, target group, you mean victims? And Leslie goes, oh, potato, potato. <laughs> victims, you know, <laughs> same thing. Yeah, same thing. Leslie says, you don't just wake up one day and pick a girl to start stalking. You need a good supporting cast. You need a survivor girl. She's a virgin. You just, you, and you, How do you know she's a virgin? You, you just kind of know. And this group was just an example. He says he already has a girl picked out in Glen Echo. So he has his, his girl. And you think, that, again, spoilers, but you think at this point is where Taylor would realize there's a problem because... Again, I, as we've established, there will be spoilers. Please, for the love of God, if you don't want this spoiled, go pause this now and go watch it. But so we find out at the end that Taylor is the virgin. So if she's a virgin, he says he can just know that someone's a virgin, then how the fuck would you not be like, oh, this isn't good. Like, this is a problem. <laughs> but I digress. Some fun trivia for this part. In the background, we see some girls playing jump rope. They're in white dresses. So this is clearly a reference to Nightmare on Elm Street. Yay, hat tips. Yes, exactly. This is, again, this movie is completely filled with, you know, references, Easter eggs, however you want to call it. delightful. Yeah, so it's like you if you pay really close attention, you'll see stuff constantly. So you see them playing jump rope, you know, just like they were in Nightmare on Elm Street singing the song about Freddy. And then Leslie brings them to meet his actual finer girl, Kelly Curtis. So this dun, is kind dun, dun, dun. of, yeah. And then, so this is clearly, I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, that's immediately think of when you hear Curtis, but her sister in real life is actually named Kelly Curtis. So again, if you know, the more you know, the more fun this movie becomes. Mm-hmm. But basically Leslie makes it clear that to them, no one can speak to Kelly because they want to do an interview with her. And he's like, absolutely not. No one can. He freaks speak out. To yeah. He's like, like no. Like uh-uh. he's just big load of nope. So like, immediately you're like, well, they're clearly gonna ruin this and mm-hmm. break this rule. Yeah, and he's like, he becomes a tad unhinged at that point because he's been really chill until now. He's like, no, you cannot talk to yeah, her. Under like, no circumstances. Like, like he is, he's a focused guy. He's a motivated guy. So on to step three of his plan, the flyby. So this is where we see what happened in the cold open of the movie. There's a brick that props open the door she has, and there's clear fishing line. So he pulls it out. So he makes it look like the door's just closing. 
Yeah, and it's like, the way I looked at this voice also, I was like, I was like it's like behind the scenes of a magic show of death. <laughs> right? He's like, he's like pulling up the curtain of how to do all these tricks to scare the bejesus out of somebody. And then kill them. Exactly. So we see the group getting back into a van, and we see someone heading towards the building. Leslie is very spooked at this point. And I assume this is the character of Doc Holleran kind of making their first unannounced appearance, which, of course, is the famous Robert England. And now we head over to meet Leslie's two best friends. One of the best scenes in this movie. And his best friends are Eugene and his wife, Jamie. We learn very quickly that Eugene is retired from the, the biz, but he's an old pro. So they make it out that he's an ex-slasher who is retired now. So, obviously Jamie is a reference to Jamie Lee Curtis, but it's never really said who Eugene is, but I've read in some interviews that it's supposed to be Billy from the original Black Christmas. And there was actually an earlier version of the script where they hinted at it more clearly that it's that it's Billy, but it's not really established in this. But just keep that under your hat, knowing that this is Billy from Black Christmas. And if you've never seen Black Christmas, see it. Yes, it's great. Stop what you're doing and go watch it. It's, it's absolutely great. Fantastic classic film. So as they walk up to the house, you'll see a 1973 Oldsmobile Delta 88 parked outside. This is the car that is featured in every one of Sam Raimi's movies. Raimi calls it the classic. If you also look in the rear deck, you'll see a toolbox. I think we all know what those things were used for at some point. (laughs) And Jamie says that here that she keeps forgetting to get Eugene out of the tank. So what the hell are they talking about the tank? Apparently, it's, it's a sensory deprivation chamber. And they are legitimately digging up from looks like, like, almost like a grave, but it looks like a weird metal tube that they're just digging him out of, which yeah. is, this is a really cool scene. And it, I've read somewhere that it's there's actually like a real coffin they use, but I don't know if that's true because it didn't look too much like a coffin to me, but that's what I read. Like a modified one, probably. Yeah, but so Leslie says that, you know, that you got to keep control of your body. You know, he's like, you know, like yoga people do. They can like slow their heartbeat to four beats per minute. Foreshadowing. And apparently... Eugene's been down there for three fucking days. This is impressive. Yeah, so we jump back. Jamie's making dinner. She says, you know, how they support Leslie. She just wishes he'd chosen a safer career. So it's like, I'm like, it's like they're talking about him joining the military or something. It's, it's like she's she's so, like, it's almost like he's their, like, long forgotten son. Like their son or something, you know? Yeah, or like, like she, the neighborhood boy that they just kind of, like, always were real close with. Yeah, it's like, oh, you know, I wish... I wish he would have picked out something a little safer, don't you know? Why do she suddenly from Minnesota? I don't know, but it fits. <laughs> it fits. It's like it's such a mom thing to do, mm-hmm. and it's really cool. And, and and I have to say, this whole scene is fantastic. You know, they're making the business of mass murder such a um, passed down through the generations kind of situation. It also tries to make it all so really logical, you know. Like, it's this inherited business, and it's it puts this whole real-world kind of ethos on it, and it's really cool. And another fun bit here in this scene where they're making dinner and everything, Eugene goes to chop carrots, and he chops them incredibly fast. Well, first of all, he does it really slowly when he's mm-hmm. just, like, telling them about the about his, like, 
backstory a bit. Yeah, but he tells about his success in the 60s and 70s and how much killing without the prep work of today, and he gets annoyed, and this is when he starts talking about hacks or just one-hit wonders, hitting a sorority, getting killed or arrested. Is this a reference to somebody we know? Yeah, so I assume it's, again, the reference to Billy from Black Christmas, since, again, that's hitting a sorority house, but I also wonder if in some ways this was like a Ted Bundy reference, because right before he got caught at FSU, he hit the, the Chi Omega sorority house and that was on january 15th 1978 and then he kills kimberly leach who's a seventh grader on february 9th 1978 as well but then he's captured of course you know a month later on february 15th 1978 so basically even though he's not the one hit wonder i still felt like you know he hit the sorority and then he gets arrested you know you know sorority made him fuck up kind of thing Mm -hmm. yeah i think he's kind of referencing that yeah this guy was a hack you know yeah hack good term and he says it cheapens it and then uh, this is when it zooms in and he's he's rapidly cutting the carrots and they are now brunois and eugene says jay fred and mike worked really really hard and again i love how they keep referring to them like they're like old pals at the bar like you know like i I imagine buddies you know like like the the poker poker dogs but you have all these people all these people at the table (laughs) the murder dogs the murder dogs yeah it's like 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 the ted lasso with like the diamond dogs the murder murder dogs it's almost like like cheers for psychopathic mass murderers or something like like where everybody knows your name yeah yeah that that fits you know it's another thought way to kind of spin it you know like you have like Mike and Jason, Jay, they're, they're like Norm and, and everything. Yeah, Norm. Oh, Norm. I mean, I mean, Cliff was a ticked off, ticked off postal worker, so I mean. Well, it, I was thinking we said Norman, I was thinking like Norman Bates. No, like Norm on Cheers. Like, yeah, no, that's what I was saying, but I was like, oh, this. this but you I'm could also substitute Norm. Yeah, like, we should make that a, so I funny. should get better at art and make that a shirt. That'd be cool. And he also, he states that, you know, they, again, talking about their buddies, the murderers, how they became legends by returning like a curse over and over again. And that changed the whole business. So, again, they were, they, you know, he was ranting on one-hit wonders and stuff like that. So coming back over and over again, so making people anticipate it is what really revolutionized things. Yeah, and then... I love how Taylor though goes the business of supernatural killing sprees. And this is one of the best lines in the movie coming up. Eugene explains and he says this very seriously and and he says No, the business of fear. For good to be pitched against evil, you have to have evil. I just love that line though. That's just it's so perfect. Like that basically like it's almost like we're doing God's work here. Without without evil, you'd have no good. Yeah, you don't have the contrast. You don't have the yin and yang. And that set of lines stuck with me probably more so than any others in the movie. Could not have been delivered any better by Scott Wilson. He's a legend. Yeah. So we jump back to them just sitting in the living room, you know, Jamie's preparing a doggy bag for them to, you know, hey, I'm with the dogs. <laughs> but yeah, right. For, for preparing the doggy bag for them to, like, you know, just, like, their food that they had had for dinner. Now, if you look really carefully, you kind of look at the side table that's between Leslie and Eugene, you're going to see the laminate configuration puzzle box from Hellraiser. Great little nod, little yeah. hat tip. 
and then we get to a point where Eugene asks Leslie about his red herring. This is really important. And he says she spends a lot of time at the library. So this is, you know, maybe, maybe you knock off a friend. Eugene says, no, 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 that's not, that's not a good idea. Jamie suggests the librarian, maybe. And Leslie explains what a red herring is here, which is a preliminary strike that indirectly involves the final girl. I'm just looking at Taylor like, aren't you a journalist in grad school? How don't you know? Like She was really confused. Like, how this. does she not know what a red herring is? And so then we jump to them arriving at the library. And Leslie shows an article about the suspect that was questioned in his mom's rape. He says it's her great uncle. So Taylor comments on how much the picture looks like Kelly. And Leslie says it's actually a computer-generated image. And she doesn't have a great uncle that he knows of. So he's kind of planting the seeds here. So they I love go... how it's like, like so perfect, though. Like That always happens in the movies, though, where... It's like, oh, look, it's like, it looks so much like her. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, no, it's just a computer generator. Yeah, it's like, 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 of course. Like, it's just no, like, no, again, I just, I just, I just edited this and, yep, it's all good. So they, they get into where they're sneaking into the library. So they go in through the back. And Leslie puts this newspaper clipping where she can find it. He wants to make sure she can find it. And a fun little note here that we can see behind Leslie... There are books about fire and combustion, which will absolutely come into play later in this story. And Leslie explains how he switched out the microfiche and the next stage of the plan if everything goes correctly. So we're moving on to the next part of the plan. He is a happy guy. Yeah, so basically, you know, assuming that she finds the paper, she's going to go to the microfiche and then she's going to see the, you know, the full article. And he's just so giddy about it. He's just, like, jumping. He's like, oh, boy, oh, boy. And, like, yeah. I heard at one point he, like, grabs from behind him. For whatever reason, Paradise Lost is with the fire and combustion novel. So mm -hmm. he's just, like, he grabs it and he's just like, Paradise Lost, found it. <laughs> I just, I got a kick out of that scene. It's like when, it's like in Seinfeld when George Costanza's all happy because he's a Boston. Jerry, I'm Boston. <laughs> there you go. You got your Seinfeld reference in. Do-do. <laughs> And, you know, like, the, the joys of premeditated murder. He's so freaking happy. And the planning and the roadmap and, and how they actually make this all work in a real-world setting and make it really logical. This perspective is one of the things for me that really makes this movie work and makes it tick. And at this point, we see that apparently Doug was staying in the van. So it's only Todd and Taylor and Leslie that went inside. And he sees someone pulling up the building. He's just like, who is that? But then we jump, and again, it's going to be, obviously, Doc Halloran. So Kelly, of course, finds the article, goes to the librarian, and wouldn't you know it, the librarian is our amazing Zelda Rubenstein. It made us both so I know, I was like, Tangina! In this, her name is Mrs. Collingwood, though. Now, sadly, as we said earlier, Zelda passed away in 2010, so this is her last movie, but again, I absolutely loved her in this, so she's just so perfect. Yep, darn fine performance, for sure. And Collingwood could also be a reference to Mary Collingwood and her parents from Last House on the Left. Yeah, it's just like one letter different. So it's instead of Collingwood, it's Collingwood in mm -hmm. Last House on the Left. But again, mm -hmm. if that's not a reference, then I don't know what is. For sure. And uh, when she talks, she uses her kind of classic voice from Poltergeist and tells the story in a very similar style. It's so perfect. Like, I was like giddy watching this. Oh my god. It's one of the most memorable scenes in this movie, I think. And it's all because of Zelda. So she takes her to check the, the microfiche for the rest of the article. 
Now, there's a slight plot fall in this. So if you watch, when they're looking at the article, it says Glen Echo, Oregon instead of Maryland. And so, because the filming actually took place in Oregon, so I'm guessing that's where this got messed up. But I was just like, I was like, no, Maryland, damn it. <laughs> if it's not Maryland, it's nothing. Yeah, it's wrong. <laughs> so Zelda starts telling the story of the Vernon boy, but tells Kelly, nah, it's just a story. But, but Kelly really wants to know. So Zelda points her back to the microfiche that they planted and Kelly starts to read aloud about the photo of Mr. and Mrs. Vernon on their wedding day and Zelda says that they they were strange and that's the only photo you'll find and then she tells the tale that Molly Vernon gave birth to a bastard son nine months after quote-unquote that night and when we say that night this is the only part I was a little unclear on I'm assuming that that we're referring to the rape that supposedly happened that Mrs. Vernon got raped by Kelly's great uncle and I'm assuming it's that and not referring to the marriage itself like the marriage night because since that's supposed to be the only photo it was it was bizarre but Zelda goes on to tell how Leslie was horribly abused he was forced to live in the cider house he was driven like a slave to till the fields with only a hand scythe and that the legend has it that beneath a blood red harvest moon that the boy murdered Silas which it's not clear in this, but I'm assuming that was his dad, or his quote-unquote dad, you know, like, since he's a bastard son, and then hanged his mother in the apple orchard, and when the town people discovered this, they bind him, like, his le- his hands and legs, and threw him over the falls, which, again, si- side note here, Glen Echo is basically right on the Potomac River, but in that area, there's not really any waterfalls. Like, there are parts, like, if you go in different parts of Potomac, but that part of the Potomac River doesn't really have any waterfalls in it, but I digress. So... Kelly asks if they ever found his body, and of course Zelda says that with the water being cold, the bodies don't come up, and that the turtles picked his bones clean. Ah, the turtles. Yeah, but this is actually cool. This is a fun fact. Cold water is actually where bodies don't resurface, so they don't decompose. They just kind of float to the bottom and stay there, because they can't release the gases that would cause them to resurface normally. And it's also funny because he has pet turtles. So it, it's, it's just it's, it's another... It's it all coming around. It's mm-hmm. all coming together. Yep, the, just building up. And then this is the point, of course, where Kelly puts the pieces together that she'd be related to this body, but Zelda says, no, you have nothing to worry about. But of course, there's Leslie in a creepy mask right behind Zelda, and he whips out the scythe. But Robert England miraculously shows up right behind him with a guy and says, Leslie, no more, it ends here. And Zelda seems to fall to the ground dead, but we don't really see any blood, so I'm really not 100% sure she's actually dead. And this is, you know, business is picking up here. So Doctor Doc Holleran... Business is picking up, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. And Doc... It's totally ripped off from Jim Ross in wrestling. Ah, I didn't realize. But it, it fits. And so Doc Holleran shoots at him, but Leslie dodges it. And Kelly sees him jumping around the top of the bookcases. Doc Halloran shoots a few times more, but of course he just misses him. And a fun fact, this seems like a really good time to point out how much Doc Halloran reminds us of Dr. Loomis from Halloween. It's just about a one-to-one thing. And that's, that's I'm, I'm sure that's where they were going. Oh, it's a thousand percent intentional. And, if it wasn't, it's, it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. And Robert England plays this up masterfully. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's perfect. And also kind of another fun thing. I read the Doc Halloran's supposed to be a combo of 
Danny's nickname from The Shinings. Remember, they call him Doc. Mm-hmm. And then the chef that we meet at the beginning of The Shining that's talking to Danny, explaining The Shining to him, is Dick Halloran. So the name's spelled slightly differently, again, kind of like with Collingwood, that it's just got one less N, but again, if this isn't an homage, I don't know what is. Oh, it absolutely is. And then now we're back outside after the whole shootout in the library, and Leslie and Taylor are just going nuts. And they start yelling, we got an Ahab, which Leslie quickly explains is the guy back there, which is obviously Doc Holler. And they get back to Jamie and Eugene's house, so they're kind of, and they show them the video, and Leslie explains he was wearing a vest so the shot didn't hurt. I'm sure he felt it a little bit, but... Yeah, from everything I've heard, when you get shot with a bullet, even if you have a bulletproof vest on, it still hurts like a motherfucker. But then again, you know, this guy... He's so giddy at this point. This guy's probably full of adrenaline, so yeah. maybe he really didn't. True. And, For now. Um, yep. And Leslie explains that Doc Holleran is a psychiatrist who visited him when he was a little boy, but after Leslie got away, Doc Holleran always thought he'd come back. Very Halloween vibes here. Now we go into, like, we want to know what an Ahab is, and instead of just the guy back there, Leslie goes into a better definition and explains that an Ahab is a representation of all that is good, and that they're going to protect others against evil no matter what the cost. Now, what's kind of cool is, I kind of dove into this probably more than most people would, but, so I see this more as a person that would go after what they perceive to be bad, because in Moby Dick, which I'm going to take a moment to always laugh at the fact that sperm whales named Moby Dick, because I'm a child. Um, a sperm whale named Dick. Wow. I know, but apparently Moby Dick's actually named after a real white sperm whale that was called Mocha Dick, which was killed in 1838. As far as we can tell from records, there was about up to 100 whalers that had failed to kill him. But apparently he was really docile until like someone attacked him, which again, I'm like, so here's a great fucking idea. Leave the damn whale alone. Right? Like, why are they trying to hurt this poor, innocent, docile creature? Oh, because it looks different, so immediately I have to kill it. Yeah, I think it's then became, of course, the idea of, like, no one could kill it. Like, people tried and they failed. To me, it just, it really bothered me. So apparently I read some things where they said that when they finally did kill it, it was, like, had all these harpoons stuck in it. And I'm like, this poor creature. Right. But anyway, so back to the book, though, of, you know, Moby Dick, Captain Ahab gets his leg bitten off by Moby Dick, and then he dies trying to kill him. So it's not so much about protecting others with no regards for your own safety, but rather being so focused on your obsessions that you'll do anything, even putting yourself and others in danger to complete your goal. So that was my take on it. Again, thanks for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) And I think that's a really good take, and it kind of goes into Doc Holleran slash... Dr. Loomis kind of thing, is where they will do anything to protect others from evil, but it also kind of becomes an obsession. Yeah. It absolutely is an obsession for Dr. Loomis. And it's the same mirrored thing here. And then we, so we jump back into the story. So Taylor decides to talk to Kelly, because there's no way that'll go wrong. Yeah. And just warn him, don't do this. The killer literally tells you, don't do this. And what do you do? You do it, of course. You do it. That's a great idea. You want to tick off the guy who has this elaborate plot of of fame and glory and of course doc Holleran is there comes over and says why why are you following kelly around like this guy is on it and he says leslie's real name is leslie mancuso and he's from reno nevada yeah so we're quickly figuring out that something's amiss but let's also take a moment to appreciate that Mancuso is the last name of two famous people in horror. So obviously we have Frank Mancuso Jr., who 
produced a lot of the Friday the 13th sequels and also April Fool's Day, which we reviewed as our first episode. Also, Nick Mancuso, he's not credited, but he actually did the voice of Billy in Black Christmas, which again, circling around to Eugene, supposed to be him, again, we're all just diving into the references. And there's no relation. I checked if Frank Mancuso Jr. and Nick Mancuso are related. No relation, just happen to have the same last name, so convenient. Very much so. That was a creepy voice on Black Christmas, too. Yeah. It's complete madness. And, of course, Taylor here is completely, completely frightened and goes to leave without speaking to Kelly. She's like, nope, I'm over this. And I call her and just drops the line, expect to see more of me. And, of course, I, like, in right when he says that, I'm like, especially in your dreams, <laughs> Freddy. <laughs> Dr. Freddy Hollering. Dr. Freddy Hollering, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and Leslie is pissed. Of course, like, like you said, he said, don't do this. And he just slams Taylor into the van and tells her, like, this is my life's work. Where's the trust? And, like, it's kind of funny at this point. You're like, yeah, I don't blame the guy. He yeah, told you it, not to do this. You start you're doing this. He allows you into his world to do this documentary about this. When, you know, a lot of most of these, you know, classic villains would have never done that. So he's given him all this access and he's mad. And I, I get it. Because, like, his plans are really, really highly threatened by this move. And then Taylor rebuts. She starts telling him off and telling him about not telling the truth and mentions Reno. So Leslie grabs her throat and slams her in the van, says, saying, She wins. I'll tell you everything. So now we go back to Leslie's house and we learn that Leslie is, in fact, not Molly Vernon's son. He never lived in Glen Echo. Dr. Holleran was just a psychiatrist that he had back in Reno, and he can't turn him in because Leslie filed a restraining order against him, so he'd be arrested for trying to turn him in. They're deciding, like, Taylor decides, okay, I'll stick with you, Leslie. Yeah, there's a real turning point in the. In yeah, because she's debating at that point, like, should I leave now? Like, yeah. Or like, is this it? it? Like, am I, am I over this crap? Or are we going to stick through it to the end? Yeah, so Taylor's sticking with him, and then they fall in love happily ever after. Just yep. kidding. <laughs> so, yep. obviously that's not what Unicorns happens. Unicorns and rainbows. Yep. And this might be a stretch, but the van that Taylor has is slightly reminded me of the van from the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's a green Ford. This is an off-white Volkswagen. But the front and, like, the lights just, I don't know, it gave me that vibe a little bit. I get that. And then, of course, they pull in to tell him they decided to stay with him, and he's driving a Prius, which I just burst out laughing, because I was like, I thought the van was his for some reason up until this point, and then I was like, no, of course, the, the serial killer's driving a Prius. It fits, the... because, you know, he's, it's he, so cares about, he cares about the environment, as, as well as, you know, being a butchered psychopath Of course. Person. The kind of a funny thing, also, if you watch really carefully, the van actually does have Maryland plates, but the Prius has Oregon plates, so, again... Slight plot flaw, but I just thought it was funny. Very good eye. I love how the flick just makes fun of itself. Oh, for sure. <laughs> it's just so cool. And Leslie, now now we're, going, now we're getting down to brass tacks. Leslie is, explains the plan for the night. And this is really great. Like, he really delves into this. And he really thought this through. So he goes into the Code of Ethics. Which is just funny that there's mm-hmm. a Code of Ethics. Right? It's like, there's a code to this. And it... And it kind of fits you know they make this like a fraternal order of of supernatural psycho killers you know they're passing down generation to the generation of course there's kind of a pseudo code of ethics so leslie says that you can't reach into the closet because it represents the womb 
Interesting here. And Taylor asks if he's pro-life, and he just stares her down. That cracked me up, that part. Like, just the fact that he just, like, he just stares at her like, what? Why are you even like, asking Really? This? Like, why? So now we get into the rules. So first we have steps, now we have rules. So rule one, no one gets away. So basically what he goes into with rule one is that he's going to kill a banging couple upstairs to make it look like they're sleeping. Because there's like, always one of those. Yeah, of course. There always has to be with this group of dumb college kids or mm-hmm. high school kids. In this case, I guess they're high school kids. But he says, you know, I don't want to quote unquote lose containment. He's like, you know, the lights will go out. There's going to be a couple that goes to the basement, check the fuse box. The lights are going to go on. He's going to kill the guy. The girl's going to run upstairs screaming into the house. This is going to start the panic corpse of this kid that he kills in the basement is going to get put in an unlocked tool shed and that's going to be to scare whoever goes in there next he says if anyone except for kelly you know his final girl goes in there they're dead he's going to kill him yep and once kelly goes in there it's the moment that she's going from victim to heroin not the drug i was about to say not the drug (laughs) you beat me to it but the heroine of the, of, of the group and so the big hard weapon is apparently a phallic symbol taking leslie's manhood but it's not a rocket ship Really should have given him the cookie. I, I hope someone gets that reference. Watch Death to Smoochie. It's, <laughs> it's not a rocket ship. It's a cock. <laughs> it's a cock and ball. <laughs> God, I love Robin Williams. Oh my gosh. R.I.P. Mm-hmm. So then Taylor, we kind of jump back to their interview, and Taylor's like, so you're pro-life and you're a chauvinist. And he just, again, stares at her. He's over this crap, I think, at this to point. To some extent, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we go out to the tool shed. All the weapons have been sabotaged really brilliantly. Like, what was like the head of the axe is set to fall off. Yeah, virtually every big weapon he has, like, something where it'll, like, it'll, like, maybe get one swing out of it or one hit, and then it just will practice break. Yeah, Yeah, so he has all the weapons sabotaged, so whatever they grab for, it's not going to be very useful. He's also nailed all the windows shut. And Taylor goes... Why don't they just smash them out? He says, you'd think so, but you'd be surprised. No, and when they do smash it out, it's on the second floor higher. And again, I love how aware this movie is of itself and poking fun at those tropes. It's just absolutely perfect. Because those tropes always happen. Yeah, because it's like they always run upstairs and you're like, no, oh, damn it, don't go upstairs. Or then they're you're like, trapping you know, yourself upstairs. You have nowhere to go. Again, like they could, they can't get, you know, out from the first floor opening the windows. So instead of smashing it out, they'll go upstairs and then either open those windows or actually smash those windows out. And then it's like, yep. again putting themselves in a bad spot. So. Making your making bad decisions in, in desperate times. Pretty much. So then we see him cutting down like larger branches and he says, hey, the smaller ones are pre-cut so if they try to climb, they'll, bur- they'll break. Sabotaging everything. Yeah, the kids' cars are all sabotaged. Yep. Um, yeah, he says the kids will try to hide in the barn. Doc Halloran's going to show up for the good versus evil showdown. Kelly will run to the apple orchard, which he says is representative of the birth canal. And he refers to this as a Yannick imagery, which, again, I watch it, so I was like, what the fuck is a Yannick imagery? But then he explains, because, you know, Taylor doesn't know either, mm-hmm. that basically that this Yannick imagery is really important and that Yannick means that it's like a phallic, the word phallic, but for women. So we all learned something here. Very much so. The killer is very educational. And at this point, the plan is Kelly will emerge, reborn, her innocence lost, and she's hell-bent for revenge. Her friends have been killed. She's, she's going to get to get this killer so then we cut to leslie working on a cider press he's saying it'll hurt someone tonight definite foreshadowing we go over to eugene and jamie you know they're we're doing a bit of a send-off here they're wishing him luck and taylor's doing like her final interview stuff she asks you know like well how do you survive in these situations and jamie says never hang out with a virgin which i laughed (laughs) and then eugene 
Eugene's line's great. He says, run like a motherfucker and don't stop until the sun comes up. He's not wrong. Exactly. Both of those, it's just like, well, note to self. But I so, love Jamie and Eugene. I know, they're so perfect. Again, I want to hang out with them. Yeah, no, they're absolutely perfect. But then, so we're back in the murder house. We're you getting know, ready here. Yeah, at this point, Leslie's putting on his makeup, and he's also putting on some stuff to prevent bleeding and fire retardant. Basically, it's like this like jellies made to be put all over his face and body. Yeah, the preparation. Yeah. And so Taylor asks Leslie if he loves Kelly, and he says he loves the idea of her. And in the background, you can actually hear Midnight, the Stars, and You, which is sung by Al Boley, and it's with uh, Ray Noble Orchestra. This is from 1934, and this is actually, if you pay close attention, this is what's played at the very end of The Shining. So they're in this, this last like moment together. That was in the house, but now they're up in like kind of like the hayloft of the barn. And he's like, you know, this is like his Christmas. And he starts, like, legitimately crying, just, like, happy tears. Mm-hmm. He is, like, it's like if the kid comes down from their bedroom at Christmas and they unwrap all the tools and, and, and plans to murder a bunch of people. Pretty much. So. Was that the Christmas of the Menendez brothers? You pro- probably. Probably. Like a dark humor. <laughs> based. Just going with the theme of the movie here. Yep. So Leslie comes in through the window into the room that Taylor, Doug, and Todd are waiting in. It shows that uh, he's got some spark plugs out of the cars. And again, we're ready to go. Like Beetlejuice, it's showtime. (laughs) And he says he'll give the couple coming up a bit of time together. He's not a bad way to go out. And Todd's like, awesome, yes. (laughs) (laughs) The way he does that is great. Right. And you hear the and here we go. You hear the couple going at it. Leslie quickly kills them both, but we just hear it and don't see it. Really cool trivia fact here. In the original draft of the script, the movie was going to end here because Stevie felt that we've all seen the slashers and they didn't really need to show it. What he wanted the focus on what happened before the slasher, which is an interesting take. Yeah, definitely an interesting take. I like that they. Did, that they continued on with it, with what happens, but I thought that was a really good, just sh- only what happens before, not the actual slasher itself. That um, would have been a really good, like, surprise ending. Because yeah. you don't expect it to end here. Yeah. No, I think it, it would have worked, but I love what they did with it. Yeah, so. I agree. I think they made the right decision to, to go on. Yeah, so Taylor and the group, you know, they're obviously a bit shaken by the fact that literally people just got killed. You know, now the reality, I think, is finally set into yep, these folks. it's on. Yeah. And it's kind of like, you think about, okay... Now you're all shaken up. You've been following this guy around for a while, knowing what he's going to do. You know what he's going to do. And now you're surprised that he actually did it? What, do you think he was joking? I don't think it's so much that he they thought he was joking. I think it's that he was so nice and personable. I think they let their guard down a lot. You, they really let their guard down a yeah, lot. Because, but- again, this guy, the, the whole concept of this is he wants to be the next big slasher. So... The fact that he's actually doing it, you think he was going to have a change of heart? Do you think so? No, I don't think so much that they thought he would as much as, like I said, I think it's just they were so shocked because it's like, oh God, oh shit, this is, this is people, really happening. People are dead, Think bad things are happening. So Taylor and the group, they're clearly shaken by this. Leslie forces them outside, says that Taylor has the quote-unquote, we can't just stand here and let this happen, look. So he gives them back the mic, tells them to go, like just leave at this point. Yeah, get like out at this point it's done. And, he, you know, he, Leslie comes back apologizing and says, you know, this is his night and he'll either be in hiding, locked up, or dead. One of those things. So let's just say our goodbyes now. 
Taylor tries to tell him, you know, you, he's, you've got a choice. And he says, he made this choice to be the counterbalance to good. Great line. Love that line. So good. And it's, it's like, why does Taylor think he's going to have a change of heart here? Do you really think that's going to happen? Yeah, there's two. I I think she's lost it. Like legitimately, like you're so far out from reality. Yeah, and at this point, though, the funny thing is when he's talking to her, like, he kept getting closer to me, I was like, is he going to kiss her here? Like, are we going with that route? But we didn't, and I, I love that we didn't, because it kind of felt like it would. Kiss her with a knife. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, Leslie walks away, and Taylor says to pack it up, and they see the lights go out in the house, and Taylor literally says, we cannot just stand here and let this happen. And, of course, Todd points out, he's like, that's literally what Leslie said she'd say. <laughs> and then Taylor turns to the camera and says, this documentary's done. She's over this. And this is when we transition from the documentary cameras that we've been going through this whole film with to just following the group like it's a regular movie. So documentary's done at this point. And this is the first time we actually see Doug and Todd's faces. And you know, they start they start arguing about should we go into the house and try to save these kids? And Doug's like points out, you know, he, he could come after us, and yeah. he's absolutely right. You know, if they interfere, they're going to be in the in the crossfire, crossfire, you know. And, of course, Taylor says, okay, cool, fine. You guys stand here holding your balls, and she storms off. Yeah, and Todd says one of his best lines, like, she had to make the fucking balls reference. I laughed so hard. <laughs> of course, at this point, they go into the house now, and... Somehow this movie, again, becomes even more aware of itself and aware of the trope. So, like, Todd says, this is a bad idea, and immediately says, I don't like that I just said that, given the circumstances. <laughs> it's so good, and, it, like, this movie is about tearing down that fourth wall yeah, and so doing it in the most fun way possible. It's just so perfect. Yep. And then they, they find the two stoner guys. Which literally, as we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm, are literally built as the stoner guys. And they say that Kelly's upstairs. So we hear a slight scream, and the lights come back on. And they walk in on Kelly just bucking Bronco on her boyfriend, spinning her bra around over her head. Virgin, my ass. Yeah, I just, I just watched this, and I was like, huh. I was like, so not a virgin. This is where, like, again, I'm usually good at picking out twists and stuff. Did not fucking see this coming mm-hmm. at all. This is when it gets crazy. Crazier, yeah. I should say, because it's already gotten crazy. So they go downstairs. And the lights go out again. The jock in the cellar is dead. Kelly comes back downstairs. They get the group all together in the living room. They explain that Leslie's here to kill him. The stoners, of course, think it's funny. Of course they do. I was just like, I love the stoners. They're just, they crack me up. So the other girl comes around from the basement. She says Pete's dead, which was, I guess, her boyfriend. Yeah. Kelly sees Leslie outside the window and faints. Some final girl. Right. And... Taylor, Todd, and Doug decide to mess up the plan and take the stoners upstairs to see the bodies. So Leslie's at the window. He's lightly drawing his scythe against it to make a really creepy noise with a skull. But no bodies. Yeah, so this throws them off because they like, wait a minute. The body's supposed to be here. We knew the plan. The plan has changed. Or <laughs> it was this part of the plan all along. Yeah, like tell them what's going to happen because he knew that they were going to come back. So the stoners go to the tool shed. One goes in and finds Leslie, but he thinks he's a scarecrow because, again, they're stoned off their asses. And, of course, he did. So when I say he did, not the stoner, not Leslie, obviously. So the other one opens the door and gets a post digger to the heart, pulls out his own heart, and, like, lays it in his hand with the post hole digger. And somehow this dude is alive and looks at it. And I'm just like, (laughs) I'm like, golly, ma! Exactly. (laughs) So Taylor and the boys see this, and, of course, they, like, book it back to the house. They're like, we're done. Yeah, they're over this. 
So we're back in the house, and they're, of course, trying to think of a, a last-ditch plan to figure this out. You know, they run to their van, thinking it's not sabotage. They would be wrong. Of course he sabotaged their van. He knew they weren't going to leave, and he didn't want them to leave, I don't think. So, of course, the dead kid's in the van instead of the bedroom. They find that the van won't start. Of course. Everything's gone to hell, and I think for Leslie, everything's going to plan. Yeah. So, we run back to the house. Taylor explains to Kelly that she's supposed to be the survivor girl slash final girl. She screams she's sorry she's not a virgin. Of course, the door rattles, scaring them. Kelly breaks the window, and before anyone has a chance to stop her, she goes onto the pre-cut branch and falls to her death. So, yep. Final girl's already dead at this point. She's, what, the third, per- third fourth person to die at this point. Mm-hmm. So they look out the window, and, of course, they see Leslie standing right there. So I don't know who, how the hell he, again, he rattles the door and runs out there just to stand there. Like, again, great cardio on this guy. Yeah, right, he's got it down. And I am, I will fully admit, I am totally rooting for Leslie at this point. I, you have to. I, I, I like this guy. He's, he's a fun mass murderer. <laughs> and so Leslie, of course, is, he's walking towards them while they run to the barn, Cardio, this is where it comes in. He's just walking, they're running, but he's keeping pace. Todd heroically decides to buy them some time. He says, I'll see you around, have a nice summer, and takes off saying, Leslie, no one gets away, rule number one. Good line. And Doug and Taylor then head to the barn. Todd says, come on, you physical specimen, chase the doughboy. Todd's awesome. I know, I love Todd so much, I was so sad. This scene is a little heartbreaking for me, but Todd trips and falls backwards, Leslie's right on top of him. Todd pulls his mask back and says, Look at me, man, it's Todd, we're in this together. Leslie takes his mask off and just snaps Todd's neck like a twig. R.I.P. Todd. Yes, I know, I love Todd, I was sad when he died. But in the barn, we go into the hayloft, which is what Leslie predicted would happen, but he's not up there, which is what he said would be, but again... Obviously, the plan's changed, or, again, the plan he told them has, is different than what it was. So, Taylor tells the remaining girl and guy that, you know, they don't matter, which I was like, that's not the best way to comfort these folks, but okay. But she's not wrong. She's not wrong, but it's like, oh, they don't matter, like, you know, you're just, the, like, fodder, basically, is the way I interpreted that. And I was like, well, shit. You're not the real target. Yeah, so... Taylor says, he knew he found me before we even shot a frame. And I was like, yep, that's right, folks. This is where we learned Taylor is the virgin. She is the final girl. Yep, and they did a really nice job of covering this up. When you get to this reveal, you start thinking about, oh, there's some subtle hints about this here and there. And it really adds a satisfying twist that you didn't really see coming. You can predict a lot of these things and sometimes... But this time, they really did a nice job of, of covering it up. And I wonder if part of the reason they did such a good job covering up is originally it was supposed to end at that other part. So mm-hmm. they had very limited hints for this. And it really worked. Yeah. It really worked. There's a couple little things that you can kind of say, oh, yeah, maybe he's kind of got something else in mind here. Yeah. But it's it's really well done. And they hear a noise at this point. They go running up the hay. Like they're they're jumping on top of the hay and now they're trying to get away. I grew up riding horses and of course we would jump around the hay in the barns and whatnot. And that shit ain't safe. You, you know you can really easily fall through those and get like stuck and it's like really dangerous because it's so heavy to move. Like it's really dense, right? Yeah, and so like you could do it sometimes on like kind of the hay bales they were jumping on probably would have been fine. But like I was watching it's a this. tied up tight hay bale more so than like just a big pile. 
think would be safer. Well, no, no, no. The tied up ones, the problem is that, like, especially if it's, like, the round bales, the problem is, like, we would jump between them. But if you fall down those, if you have them stacked high enough, they're so heavy, they're hard to move. So it's one thing with, like, mm. the ones they were jumping on, but I'm thinking more, like, the round bales. Gotcha. They're, like, 100 plus pounds each. So, like, sure. they it takes, like, massive, like, equipment to move them. So, like, if you fall down and you're trapped in there, they have to try to move those without actually, like, doing anything that would cause the others to move onto you. Ooh. So it's, I'm That's watching rough. this and I'm just like, nope. Nope. Unsafe. Yep. And at this point, Doug grabs a shovel, thinking Leslie's coming into the barn. Nope, it's Doc Halloran, and now they've knocked him out. Yep, here comes Doc to save the day, and he's unconscious. Yeah. And Doug tries to do the smart thing of a double tap, and there's a lot, some instances where just, just double tap. Didn't you see There's so many times that? where you're like, double tap, but this time you're like, no, damn it, don't double tap this time. Yep, but Taylor stops him, realizing, hey, it's not Leslie. It's not him. Let's not do this. And then the other girl tries to climb the ladder. Taylor tries to stop her. Leslie grabs her. Bye-bye, Lauren. She did. <laughs> like an idiot, the other guy, I think the name is Shane. I, could, I didn't really establish his name. It's just kind of like, a, like, sure like a, this him. part of the, the, the teenager group. He's he, the part that doesn't matter. Exactly. He <laughs> doesn't matter. But he goes up the ladder. Leslie gets him, too. He just hangs him. But he pulls Leslie with him, and he falls from the hayloft and appears to be knocked out. And Doug and Taylor see this, and yet Doug doesn't think it's a good time to double tap now. Like, yep, at this point, you know, Leslie's down and out. Just double tap. Yeah, like, you wanted to double tap Doc, Doc Halloran. Now's the time to actually double tap. Yep, it's like, do you have, like, like double tap anxiety at this point? Yeah, right? So, of course, Leslie then, like, sets up real quickly like Michael Myers. So good. And I just was like, I love that. So then Taylor started explaining how he thought of all this, Doug, you know. And Doug is in the most perfect way, again, with the movie being so aware of the tropes himself. He's like, he's like, help me, quit explaining. <laughs> Which is so perfect, because how many times do you shout that in a horror movie where someone's just, like, explaining what happened? You're like, damn it, you're about to die. Don't explain. We'll find yeah, out I later. Don't, I don't need a synopsis here. Yeah. And he's, he's coming for Taylor and Doug, because the exit is blocked with hay, and then we see the stoner bodies as well. So he got the stoner dudes. So the stoners have stoned up the door? <laughs> At this point, Doc Holleran wakes up just in time to grab Leslie's scythe hand. Taylor legit goes, hi, Doc, and then runs. Like It's just like the way she did that. I don't know why I thought that was so funny. It was just you, like, you, you, she's you, like, hi, Doc. It's so close to almost like a Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Chewing on the carrot. Yeah. What's up, Doc? What's up, Doc? So Taylor and Doug, they run into a stall with an open window, but of course then they look out the window, there's a bunch of pointy things outside the window, you can't really jump out, so Leslie stabs Doc Holleran. Doug says that, you know, he loves Taylor, and again, I'm like, Taylor, fucking move. Like, he's like blocking the way so that Leslie can't get to Taylor, and Taylor's just watching instead of like, leaving and i'm like god damn it taylor stop being the the stereotype right but they play the stereotype up really oh, well they have so. to they have to yeah. i'm just like watching it though being like damn it no don't do this yeah tensions are building here leslie smashes doug into a wall taylor gets out runs to the tool shed and then this is when they find out poor todd falls out dead taylor grabs an axe and heads to the apple orchard uh, that's probably not gonna work out too well for you she runs around finally turns and sees leslie she takes off her jacket, gets all tough, and she says, come get some. So Taylor's ready for the fight. Leslie walks off a bit, and, and she's just trying to keep an eye on him, but, you know, he's really crafty about his movement. She's really at a disadvantage here. She's playing in his wheelhouse. And, of course, you know, she's running, he's walking, but, of course, he's still keeping up. Of course, up. he has cardio. Yeah, he has to. So he swipes at her, she dodges, and she hits him with the axe, and he's laying on the ground, and she starts to walk away, turns around, grabs the axe, then looks back at him once more, but per usual, he's gone. 
And I'm like, bitch, you cannot take your eyes off him. Fucking double tap. Yep. They don't learn that lesson, do they? Yeah. And then she runs in until she gets to the building with the cider press. We knew this was coming. Cider press was kind of kind of foreshadowed earlier. Just throws the axe down. Because she's that smart. Like, let's just throw the axe away. Goodbye, weapon. And she walks inside. Leslie quickly shows up. He goes in, too. Taylor's hiding in the dark, and and she hits Leslie with a pulley hook attached to a rope, also known as a block and tackle, and she just charges at him. And again, you could have had a weapon, but... Yeah, she's definitely at a disadvantage here, but she's trying anything she can. He gets on top of her, and Leslie starts choking her. She gets his scythe, and she stabs him. So she pushes him under the cider press, and then she starts crushing his head. She's just tweaking that thing as much as she can. He gets the mask off, and we kind of hear some creaking and cracking. You assume you hear his skull is under a lot of pressure at this point. And he says, Taylor, I knew you were the and in such a classic move, she does the final turn while screaming. Just perfection. And now I'm like, okay, so we're kind of double tapping here. So she pours gasoline everywhere. She strikes a max. She throws the axe back into the building at this point. So, like, when she throws it, though, you can't see the head on it. So I was like, maybe the head came off earlier. But I thought it was on there when she threw it into, like, the bushes. But, yeah, mm-hmm. she throws that into there. And then they're watching the building burn. Doug and Doc Holleran show up behind her alive. So they're okay. Startling her, thus. Yep. They definitely freak her out. And the Doc Holleran says, he's just a man. Implying that he, you know, he's not like any other supernatural slashers that can keep coming back. No way. We see the fire here, and there's Leslie's kind of whispering a little bit. And then roll credits. There we go. Now, during the credits, and this is great, we see what looks like security camera footage of medical examiner's room. We see Leslie's charred up body brought in, and what happens? He sits right up at the very end of the credits, no, looks at the guy in the room, and the screen cuts to black. Perfect setup for the sequel that has yet to happen, but we really hope it will. Yeah. And, like, uh, no one saw that coming, him no, sitting up at the end. Not at all. No, never. And a fun fact here, the song playing at the end here while they're while they're showing this, this post-credit scene, or mid-credit scene, is the song Psycho Killer by the Talking Heads, great song, which might be a connection to Reanimator, since there's a scene in it with a poster from the Talking Heads, Stop Making Sense, which also features that same song. Again, maybe it's a coincidence, but I don't think so. I don't think there's a single coincidence in this fucking movie. Yeah, and a good thing to mention is that, you know, they've really been trying to do some other follow-up material for... For this. Yeah, they did have a comic series called Before the Mask, and mm-hmm. so I'd highly recommend checking that out. There was supposed to be a short that was about 13 minutes that was done. We haven't found it, but if anyone finds it and you send it to us, I'd be really fucking happy. Or just like anywhere, like if it's on like a, like a pay streaming service, I will get it because yeah. I want to see this short. What was the name of that short? Uh, wait for it. Wait for it, yep. And we're waiting for it. Yes. (laughs) I wanted to throw this out here. There was two other pieces of trivia I found when I was researching this movie that I did not see in the actual movie. So there's supposedly a jacket that Leslie's wearing at one point that's inspired by Akira. But I didn't see anything that to me looked too much like Akira's jacket. Supposed to say stay awake on the back, which of course is, you know, you see that drug throughout Nightmare of Elm Street movies. But again, I didn't see that. There's supposed to also be a bottle of stay awake. That's on the uh, the mantelpiece. I watched this so many times on my iPad, just like scrolling through trying to find this damn medicine. 
I can't find it. If anyone finds that screen, just screenshot it and send it to me. I'd be really happy. Yeah, that'd be cool. I like. I I love Akira. Yeah. I, I didn't see anything that quite really looked like that infamous jacket from Akira. Yeah, that, like, that's what that I was red like... futuristic biker looking jacket. But like, it's not like a Harley biker. Like more like like a racing jacket. Yeah. But so with the big pill on the back. Yeah. Just very very iconic. Yeah, and it's like I was like okay, I could see that though, like being a thing that they could have done mm-hmm. as like a kind of a nod to it. But again, I couldn't. I didn't find the scene. I've went through this multiple times. Also, from an interview, I thought I'd throw this out here. This is a direct quote from Nathan Basil. He says the film was supposed to end with two incensed town people calling for justice. Robert England's fiery defense of the documentary crew and a dramatic court revelation. We didn't have the budget to execute it properly, so the scene only lives on in a trailer with Robert shouting, he needs an audience. He says it's too bad we had to lose it because he gave a great performance. So I thought that was kind of interesting that there was supposed to be like a further ending, but they just didn't have the funds to make it happen. That would have been cool to see, but I, I think they did end it on a really good note. Yeah. So we have a couple of uh, references we want to mention. Of course, um, this movie is streaming right now on Shudder. Wonderful service. Check it out. A lot of good movies on there in addition to this. We used IMDb, Wikipedia, uh, glenocopark.org. Please donate if you can. It's a wonderful park in Maryland. We also reference uh, horrorobsessive.com, fandom.com, several uh, sub-wikis within there. And iconsoffright.com, which was a really great interview with writer David J. Stevie. Yep. So into our actual like review of it, I absolutely loved this movie. I thought it was brilliant in every way, shape, and form. They did this on a complete shoestring budget. I believe they had a Kickstarter for the original, because I saw someone posted online once about their poster that they had gotten from the Kickstarter for the original movie. I was like, that's badass. I wish I had known. And I just wish they could have made the second one. I mean, I think it would have been amazing. It reminded me a lot of Scream in some ways, where it's very much a love letter to horror. It's very aware of itself. It's aware of the tropes. It plays with them perfectly. And it's just such a unique concept. It's beyond rewatchable. I would rewatch this anytime. Also, for all the Easter eggs, if there's any that we missed, please write in, because I would love to see more Easter eggs throughout this that I missed. Yeah, there's so much depth. I'm sure there's other things that we just didn't pick up on right away, which is, uh, you know, really great for the rewatchability of this. Yeah. And for me, this is the kind of production, it just reminds me why I love horror. No other genre could really pull this off quite like this. And, you know, literally... Be, go behind the mask <laughs> and it's a brilliant concept the world building's amazing they just the very idea and concept of going behind the scenes with someone who's aspiring to be the next one is is such a simple idea yet it's not easy to pull off there, there's a lot of there's so many ways this could have gone wrong there's a lot of ways this could have not been great you know you mentioned scream scream's a good flick i think this is better i think I this agree. does a much better job of things, I mean, granted, I, I'm more attracted to things with the less slicker production, and this was really down to earth, really grounded, and I think that really went to this movie's favor. There's so many things that could have gone wrong. Not convincing enough characters. The plot could have been really predictable to the point where it's just stupid. Nope, none of that. This is everything I hope for out of a movie like this, and so much more. It's a love letter to the slasher film. Characters are just, they're believable. Tons of twists and turds. You mentioned all of the Easter eggs. This movie is just filled with references. If you're a horror fan, you are doing yourself a disservice if you don't see this. And even if you don't get 
most of the references. It's still a good time with a unique premise. I, I, I can't praise this enough. It's great. I recommend anybody who's into slasher movies or horror in general, or just kind of like a fun mockumentary even, check this out. It is a good time. For sure. So with that, let's get into our ratings. Do you want to go first with your overall as a film, the skull rating? Yep, overall as a film, this is a 5 out of 5. This movie is phenomenal. It's kind of like genre-defining in the mockumentary sense, I think. I don't think there are many ways that they could have made this any better, other than if they can get more content, please do so. Which, yeah. they, obviously, they did in the comic book and the short, which hopefully we find soon. They mentioned the idea was to make this a trilogy of sorts, and they haven't been able to do that yet, but we hope that happens, because it seems like a lot of the folks involved are really on board with doing that. So, I, for me, this is a 5 out of 5. Yeah, same. I mean, this movie is just perfection to me. I mean, it's just everything you want out of, like, the mockumentary, the love letter to horror, everything about it, 5 out of 5. And based in Maryland, so yay, Maryland. How do you think on the scary factor? I'm going to give it a 2. I was not scared. There's a couple little minor little jump things here and there, but not enough for me to feel... I mean, I didn't feel so scary. Someone who's not into horror could easily watch this and have a great time. Yeah, I'd say it's a 2 as well for me. It's not scary, and it's not meant to be. That's not what this movie's all about. It's not meant to be a scary film. So, but there's a couple moments too, especially once they drop the documentary thing and kind of is going along with it. There's a couple things that might kind of get you jumping a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So for sound, I'd give it a four. I'd say sounds great. You know, they they did a really nice job with sound design. There was nothing out of place. The music, which was a lot of homages with the usage of music, was great. Sound effects were great. They're really on point. I'd say a four out of five. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually going to go five out of five on it, only because I absolutely love, like you said, there's so much good, like all the sound is good. There's nothing that sounded bad in it. The music's good. Everything just seems in place. I love at the end that there's like even a hint to reanimator. The music itself being some of the Easter eggs, just perfection. So I'm going to give that a five out of five. Very well done. On to effects. Effects, I would say about a four out of five, I think, you know. It's not a ton of really crazy over-the-top effects in this, because a lot of this was the documentary. When they did get to the point with a lot of effects, it was really well done. I think the way they set up the effects was great. I'd say a 4 out of 5 for me. I'm going to give it a 3 out of 5, only because I feel that there wasn't really a need... I mean, all the effects were obviously practical effects, which I love practical effects, so that's a plus for me. That's a big plus for me. That's one of the reasons I gave it a 4 out of 5. Practical effects are great. Yeah, but at the same time, I feel like it didn't have to do much with effects. There wasn't really a need for effects throughout it, so I feel like I'm giving... If I give it a... I want to give it a 3 just because I don't feel like there was enough to rate too much on because there were... And it's not a bad thing. It's just there wasn't a need for much effects throughout it, so... For me, the effects were just so on point. And I did love his oh, mask, though, the mask. That oh, they the mask was great. I, I need to make a 3D print of that yeah. at some point. And they didn't overdo it either, yeah. which was good, because you can really overdo the effects in something like this, and this is where a lot of slashers fail, Yeah, is they go too far, and they knew where, what what point to go to. Yeah. Gore so factor. For gore, I'm going to give it a 3, because it's not super gory, but there's definitely blood in it and stuff like that. If you can't handle even a drop of blood, again... Why are you watching horror movies? But besides that, I just feel there wasn't like a lot of blood, but the blood was good. So I'm going to, I'm going to go with a three. I'm going to go with a two on the gore factor. You know, like through most of this movie, there's no gore whatsoever. Yeah. 
because most of it's the documentary pieces. Once you get to the end, where non-documentary parts, there's some gore. It's it's not overt. It, it, there's some blood, and the blood's really well done. But you know, there's definitely some gore factor, and you know, it's a it's a slasher splatter film, so there's a little bit. But I'd say it's about a two. I mean, if you don't like gore at all, you know, there's going to probably be a few moments towards the end of the film you might want to avert the eyes, but it's not overt or anything like that. So, yeah. two for me. So I think with that, that's everything for this episode. I think that that was fun. Yep. I, mean, I had fun reviewing this movie. I think this was just, again, an absolute blast. So I had so much fun watching this movie and digging into it a little bit. Yeah, you know. digging into this, watching interviews, all this stuff. It was just an utter blast. So. For me, horror is about having fun. For me, a lot of my favorite horror movies are ones that I have fun with. I yeah. enjoy them. I like ones that test me psychologically, too, but I, the ones that I'm going to rewatch are the ones like this. And this movie has infinite rewatchability for me. Check it out. Yeah. Support it. Yeah, absolutely. And if we ever hear of anything like coming up, like a Kickstarter or anything like that, I know there was an Indiegogo campaign for the short, like like five years ago, twenty seventeen. Yeah, four or five years ago. Yeah, so unfortunately we we missed that one. Yeah, I'm very disappointed we missed that because I would have loved to throw in some money at this. Yeah, if we hear anything coming up, we will keep you all posted. I will post it all over social media. We will discuss it in episodes that have nothing to do with this, just to throw it out there. Because my God, I love this movie, and I yeah, the creators behind this. They deserve all the support in the world. Yeah. So with that, I think we can go ahead and call it a day. So thank you all for listening. This has been We Pod Down Here. I'm Brittany. And I'm Dan. Bye. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Share with your friends and family. And check out our website at www.weallpoddownhere.com. Or send us an email at weallpoddownhere at gmail.com. You can also follow our shenanigans at weallpod on Twitter. And at we all pod down here on Instagram. And feel free to suggest a movie you want us to review or just something you want to make me uncomfortable with. Until next time, this has been We All Pod Down Here. Be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs>